What do you think, darling? Should I hate him? No, that's true, but... I don't know, there's just something about him. Something around my eyes. Everybody's got great voices for podcasts too. So it's just, well, that's good. I make the the running joke too that I hate my voice, which is a bad problem to have. My dad you. complimented your voice. Oh, all right, cool. I'll take everything Ty, I can get. Ty sounds good. No, yeah, he sounds like he's done this. I honestly, the only thing I'm shooting for is like natural tone. So if I'm reading, I don't want it to sound like I'm reading, and then I'm talking, I don't want it to sound like I have this other like persona. For sure, you know, yeah. those are the two yeah. things I go for. I don't care about like, you know, like <laughs> that. That shit happens, like, you yeah. know. Yeah. Um, and I'm talking to like two audio files, so like, <laughs> you know. Yeah, there are a couple like uh, plosives that I heard in the other one, but it's it's like you you they don't matter. <laughs> yeah, and I'm listening to like these professional podcasts lately. Like, you know, I just you start to listen more and more. And they're yeah. all doing the same thing. I'm like, they're not even taking the time to do these crazy edits or anything. And like, sometimes it sounds even worse than, yeah. than what, because you have like a direct mic you're speaking into. Sometimes it sounds like there's just like an ambient room mic that everyone's talking into and it sounds like fucking garbage. Mm-hmm. And that, yeah. and for mm-hmm. me, that's like the first thing that'll turn me off from a podcast. If I like look up, because uh, my, my go-to after I finish a big series is like to YouTube stuff and listen to podcasts to kind of like, satiate the appetite yeah. you know like after i finished game of thrones recently i just looked up a bunch of stuff and as soon as i hear like a shitty room ambience and it, it doesn't sound like this you know you can hear people's voices clearly i'm just like nah <laughs> next <laughs> yeah no there's some yeah i mean there's some even like guys like we went to high school with i won't i won't name names but <laughs> <laughs> i haven't listened to that um no but you get it you, i think they have like a room mic and you can tell Mm, and like that's the, a weird choice the yeah. the group laughter is ah. like it's like piercing though so, you know yeah a lot of the rooms that you would be doing it in like similar to this it's not i mean they don't sound good yeah yeah and there's yeah there's room to grow this is the first time we've done it in here we usually do it in the living room oh cool um this is way tamer than the living room yeah <laughs> with those high voltage Listen, our listeners might find a little difference in this episode yeah, yeah. I think it's fine. I mean, I'm not. Yeah, That's like cool. I said, you know, I nothing too drastic. Hopefully, in the right direction. Yeah, you know, like it's yeah. all going in the right direction, and yeah, it seems like it is. That's one area for growth, you know, where it's like sound. Mm-hmm. Like I did everything just like the bare minimum to get it started, and then now right. it's like, all right, let's you know eventually invest in it, and you know see if it grows. And yeah, once and, it starts turning over a little bit. Yeah, but where it's at now is perfect you can just like you know there's nothing in the way of just like a bunch of really good content and whatever you dream up and yeah for sure and that's the fun part yeah it's also the hard part yeah is like coming up with the content yeah you've been pretty creative so far dude the giants one saved me like i I really liked that one and it was like kind of a mix you know to mix it up a little bit Mm -hmm. i love talking about rock and roll yeah which is gonna be yeah this will be a fun one for sure yeah yeah, distortion um, shit. You yeah. know, it was funny. I mean, you know what? Maybe I'll just say this for when we get into it. But anyways, I was right. just listening to uh, KLOS on the way over, and Green Day was on. Mm. And it, and I just can't help but, like, zoom in and zoom out every time I listen to any sort of rock and roll distorted guitar thing because it's like, I mean, that – that sound could be like recorded a number of different ways at different like this you could play the same exact part uh at like in every decade since electric guitars and amps were invented and it would sound just like that time period like you could play green day stuff in the 60s and it would still sound like the 60s yeah which would be cool (laughs) that yeah i'm gonna make a point in the outline about one song in particular (laughs) that i'm really stoked to talk about sick with that let's get into it cool yes all right, All right, so I have with me Tony. Hey. We just go on a first name basis. So. I like that. All right, cool. Even though there's probably a lot of people with your last name as well. Yeah, you could just call me Mr. Rodriguez. 
You just said it, so <laughs> we'll take it out if you really want me to. No, no. And then Chad, as always, thanks, Chad, for being here. Yes. Appreciate you. Yeah. Thank you, Tony. Yeah. Yeah, I'm stoked. Thanks for having me. Yeah, History of Rock and Roll Part 2. So in Part 1, we didn't even really scratch the surface, I think, of the history of rock and roll. Like, we talked about, like, the conception, you know, like, right. just barely. And now we're going to kind of talk about, like, the birth. We're getting into, like, the... Ooh, just okay. the gritty, the, like the gritty analogy bird. you got going on. Yeah, get those feet up in the stirrups and let's go. <laughs> <laughs> yes, dude. Uh, so recap from part one: simple math formula, right? Um, industrialization plus the Great Migration plus urbanization plus amplification, amplification, right? Equals rock and roll plus a few other key ingredients. I think Chad mentioned like cocaine. <laughs> groupies yeah yeah all that good stuff the devil Mm -hmm. we also (laughs) talked about some uh some key labels like chess records um we talked we didn't really talk about was it sun records yeah we didn't really talk about it too much um but we highlighted some of the top contenders for the birthplace of rock and roll memphis and cleveland which tony i mean are there any other contenders really out there from your knowledge i don't think so right um well we're talking about like like pre fifties, right? Well, f- yeah, like forty eight, forty nine, leading into okay. the fifties, like before, yeah, before you even have Elvis, really. Yeah, so I mean, I'm not sure if RCA was a label then, but I mean, I feel like, you know, because LA was still like Holly, like movie scores, so yeah, Capitol Records was doing all that stuff, and I think that those bigger labels that kind of existed on the coast that was away from like the the birthplace of, you know, kind of in the South and the blue thing, it kind of took them a little bit of time to get the radar, you know, get the, yeah. get that music on the radar. And then once that happened, you know, I, I don't know where RCA is based out of, but I know Elvis did his first record on, on that. I think RCA is okay. in Nashville. I mean, that place. It would make sense. It, I mean, Memphis being considered like right. one of the birthplaces, it's you nearby. know, yeah, yeah. being in, yeah, near pro- in proximity. But yeah, yeah. Yeah, I liked. I wanted to talk about in the last, you know, in the last history of rock and roll. I wanted to talk about Chess because I feel like it's one of those labels that you don't really hear about. It is a more historic label for sure, and uh, you know, pretty integral in the history of rock and roll. Yeah. But I wanted to see if we could highlight any others off the top of our domes. I that should be my job. I'll go back and do that anyways. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a ton of labels that like becomes hugely important in the years to come. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Maybe we'll touch on them in part three, part four. I yeah. feel like those two, though, are really a, they're, they're yeah, kind of the ones, yeah. places. They're up there for sure. But yeah, today what we're going to do is we're going to pick up part two. We're going to do amplification and distortion. Yeah. Before we do that, before we get into amplification and distortion, what I want to do is talk about a few key figures in rock and roll. I feel like, again, in the first you know episode, we talked a lot about like almost like the sociological, like industrialization the great migration all yeah. of that kind of stuff that contributed to rock and roll mm-hmm. today we're going to talk a, a lot more about like figures you know like just the people okay um, yeah. and some of them you know you can write a whole book on on oh. these people so Shit. we're going to go through it quick for some of it we're going to kind of fast forward us through the 50s mm-hmm. and then we're going to pick up with a couple a genre that i left out of the first one as well so we're getting out of conception. We're getting into the birth of rock and roll, but we're still kind of in the conception part too. So I don't right. know. Yeah. And in the hospital, <laughs> we're in the hospital. Yeah. We're waiting. Um, <laughs> transition. <crowning>. Every phase. <laughs> yeah. We're all in the waiting room. Big transition happens in the hospital. Uh, so first person we're going to talk about, and I mentioned him in the first episode is Chuck Berry. And the reason why these people are, are coming up is because you can't talk about rock and roll without talking about these people, yeah. you know, um, Chuck Berry is known as the father of rock and roll. That's his title. Pretty cool title, I would say. Um, he's credited with bringing the guitar front and center and making it the star, if you will. Mm. I mean, before that, like guitars obviously existed. He really made it the star of the show. Yeah. He combined he combined uh, blues and country elements together to create a more upbeat genre, which we now know as rock and roll. And he wrote songs about characters and situations that people could relate to. Which is a key theme in rock and roll, too. It's all about just being able to relate, which I think is, like, again, taking from, like, blues and whatnot. Yeah. But that's what I love about rock and roll. It's, yeah, like, it's like, anyone. Working man's music, working people's oh, yeah. music. Yeah. For sure. We're going to talk more about that, too, even with, like, like no spoilers, but doo-wop and whatnot, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
So he was also innovative when it came to the electric guitar. He invented a lot of the moves. And Tony, this is where maybe you can speak up a little bit. But he invented a lot of the moves that are still used in, in rock solos today. Yeah. Um, particularly like what it like double stops. Double stops. That's um, like the thing that is in my mind synonymous with Chuck Berry. Yeah. yeah just playing two notes at the same time. Like Johnny be good. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and that's just that's what it means just two notes at the same time basically yeah okay. yeah it's just two notes at the same time but th- that you would play as if it were a single note mm. um and usually it kind of uh it works really well because of where how the notes are arranged on the guitar and you know where the, the frets are so if you're going to play like the fifth fret on the b and the e strings you know it's it's a very simple little pinch move and then you yeah. can move that around and then you know, with the backbeat, it's used in jazz, but I, it definitely is like, like a, uh, tech technical tenant of rock and roll. Right. Like you can you can play it in jazz, and like I said, it's like two notes at the same time, and whatever the interval between those two notes is can vary, but it sounds. I think if you broke it down more, it's like a certain type of interval that is kind of unique to the guitar in the way that it's accessible to your fingers. Right. So, yeah, I can't think of any any other genres. No, no, that's all right. I wanted to see if we could make that connection. Um, But, yeah, anyways, I wanted to, again, we're going to kind of speed through these guys because we know a lot about them or people know a lot about them. But the next person is Little Richard. Little Richard, known as the architect of rock and roll. And where you have, like, Chuck Chuck Berry, right? He invented a lot of these things. Little Richard, like, perfected showmanship. Yeah. Right? He, like, created the playbook when it came to showmanship and rock and roll. He co-wrote the song Tutti Frutti which is a slang term for a homosexual man. I don't know if you guys knew that or not. I did not. A, a tutti blood. fruity. I guess maybe that, yeah. I, I guess know, I anyway. could have put that one together. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it makes sense so. when you say it, but like you, you wouldn't know it if you didn't you know, do the research. Um, the original lyrics for tutti fruity were, tutti fruity, big booty. If it don't fit, don't force it. You can grease it, make it easy. No way. Hell yeah. These were the original, yeah, original Wait, lyrics. Which record exec would have a problem with that? Uh, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> um, it was then changed to Tutti Fruity, All Rudy. Yeah. Okay. Which All Rudy just means all right. Yeah. Uh, for those that didn't know. That's um, a good little sniff right there. But yeah, I mean, it's funny. I mean, he's writing songs that are controversial. He's dressing in a way that's controversial and, and eccentric. Um, and he's one of like the early people that like start you know did like like gender bending where mm-hmm. you know like he proto prince and or proto bowie and exactly prince. Yeah. yeah yeah so he was like the the og when it came to that and then that would be a theme that would stick for the yeah like you said like you know bowie and prince yeah. and um it, you know so it's just funny like these things are in the fabric of rock and roll and you owe that to, to little richard i would like to think yeah yeah next person on the list is the, is the king of rock and roll Elvis. Elvis. Elvis Presley, obviously. You have oh, to mention hell, Elvis Presley. King. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's yeah. a really great bit where uh, in the Beatles get back when he's when uh, they're breaking for lunch and somebody says it was Elvis's birthday yesterday and then Paul McCartney says, Oh hell, my gracious king. <laughs> Super good. It's I think really I remember good. that. There was a lot of content in Get Back. There was a lot. It was a lot, but it was good. Hours. Yeah. Was it nine or six? Either way, it was a lot. 13, 13 hour cut at the beginning of it, and then boiled down to like another six and a half or so. Dang, that's wild. But yeah, Elvis. Yeah. Yeah, he's. I went through a huge Elvis phase when I was in middle school. I feel like you kind of have to. Like, yeah. I always like. I always do that. Like, I'll go back and listen. I remember feeling that way in like sixth grade, and it was like I was listening to Zeppelin kind of on my own. Yeah. I mean, I didn't go as far as far back as Elvis, but I was you know diving into the people that. I felt were like pretty influential and whatnot. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, totally. What I have for Elvis here is that he's obviously talented, right? To be able to do what he did, to sing and play the way he did. But what's fascinating is that Elvis is referred to as like the interpreter of rock and roll. So a lot of the songs that he played were like R and B songs that he made more upbeat. So in a way he kind of just like stole them. Like, like Hound Dog was uh, a big mama Thornton song. Um, and he took it and made it the hound dog we know today. Um, but yeah, he did that with a lot. I don't know if he did that with a lot of other songs, but that was a, a big one for yeah, sure. One of his huge, like huge hits that really put him on the map. Yeah. And artists did that all the time back then. That's the thing. Zep. Huh. Yeah. 
Zeppelin did that. Yeah. Zeppelin did that. Beatles did that in the early days. They're like yeah. throughout their career. I feel like even like um, a more modern example of that would even be like Sublime. Yeah. Like Sublime's, one of their albums is like so many covers and you wouldn't know if you didn't know like. Uh, Scarlet they, Begonias. Yeah, but e- even like some of the, like, I, I think even, I don't want to misspeak. I think maybe even Pawn Shop is in there. Pawn Shop's got a story. Some dude just left a tape like in his mailbox or on his porch or something and he played it and it was just like this anonymous tape and so they they recorded their own version Hell so yeah yeah rope that's pretty dope that's kind of cool that's really i cool. like that story um back to elvis though let's bring it back in so anyway so he made these r&b songs uh more upbeat right and that's what he's known for but he's also known for uh his provocative performances and what this did was it made Elvis a sex symbol, right? Those hips. And he was a really attractive man, dude. Like, you look back at, like, the, the OG, like, when he first started, dude, that guy's a good-looking good dude. Looking kid. You know? Super marketable, <laughs> I would say. Quite. Um, and he often, the thing that I read about him, too, is that he often attracted the attention of, like, men and women. You know? It was, like, one of those things. How could he like, not? Well, you know how, like, you all have, like, that one friend who always, like, comments on how, like, good-looking other dudes are? Yeah, you know what I mean. They're not even like like gay or whatever. They just like always say like, "Oh, this guy." They like always <laughs> comment on how it. yeah, he's so handsome. <laughs> yeah, they, everybody has that one that one friend probably comes to mind. Anyways, um, but yeah, I feel like it's me. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> just commenting on how good people look all the time. Um, but yeah, I bring this up because again, sex appeal is another key ingredient of rock and roll. Right, yeah. it's always been kind of the thing. Like you, you'll just see that. In, in many different bands going forward even mm-hmm. i'm trying to think like uh, mick jagger yeah moves like jagger you know what i mean <laughs> yeah a whole lot of love like yeah yeah that's kind of, yeah you're right sexuality is is a big like, part like yeah. it all of like glam glam metal oh man you know and kind of like a cornerstone of the genre because i think rock and roll is um like one of the more primal genres of music that gets closest to like the rawer emotions or yeah feelings i guess so it's cool that it comes out and then you end up getting getting people like little richard um and elvis just kind of like turning it into a marketable thing because everybody kind of has that in them at in some capacity yeah yeah and and before we like move on to the last person that we're going to talk about um like before we do that I think what's cool about not just rock and roll in general, but like people that take risks and like really like choose to express themselves authentically, like always seem to like break through and, and do well. Yeah. You know, like I always mm-hmm. just find that super, like super intriguing. Architects. Last person. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Chad. Architects. Architects. Dude. So we had the, the father, the architect and the king and the king. And this last person we're going to talk about to kind of fast forward us through the 50s is Buddy Holly. Mm. And he doesn't have like a title like that. But and I feel like he's kind of like the unsung hero. Everybody knows his name. He's like the son of rock and roll or like the cousin. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) He's like he's kind of nerdy looking, too, which is kind of funny. You know, like did um, he like marry his cousin? No way. (laughs) Oh, I mean, I don't know. Maybe he was born in Texas in like the. Oh, man, 30s that's, so that's no, before that so maybe i'm just kidding that was a bad joke i'll edit that <laughs> one out but anyways while elvis was considered the interpreter buddy holly was truly an artist and a songwriter and i think that's his lasting impression right um as we know like lots of music was recycled um, in these early days of rock and roll but buddy holly was highly influential in that he wrote his own songs um, he's been referred to as the single most influential creative force in early rock and roll pretty that's a i mean he doesn't have the king he doesn't have the architect but he's the single most <laughs> influential creative force that's pretty that's a pretty good uh I feel like a lot of like the like early chord progression like staples of yeah. rock and roll probably came from buddy i mean the one four five thing is like right like a blues or like early thing but like you know so much more came out of buddy holly than i don't know yeah at least originally right songwriting i know what you mean the yeah. creative force thing i think is is a big part of why that sticks or makes sense yeah he's he's writing mm -hmm. it's just huge you know a lot well nobody was writing back then yeah like everyone was like he's like elvis was interpreting you know right um but he was also an early experimenter when it came to double tracking so he's one of like the key innovators there 
And then, um, and, and what that, you know what that is, right? Yeah. It's like just playing to a pre-recorded, mm-hmm. rec- like recording to make it sound more full. Like double tracking the vocal. Yeah. So to kind of like cover up some of the inconsistencies in your pitch. And then it en- ends up sounding kind of like, sounds fuller, like you were saying. Yeah. yeah. I think back then though, it was like the whole song they did. And then they mm-hmm. would play over it. I could be wrong, but and I know it's probably changed that's, a lot. That's now, true but... though, because I mean, those tape machines at the time that they were recording on had a really limited amount of tracks that you could record. It wasn't like a full multi-track operation. It was like four tracks. You do all the instruments, then bounce that down to a single track, and then do all your vocals or whatever overdubs over that. And then right, yeah. So I think that's kind of like. Probably two tracks in those days too. If you, you're right, say, dude. Right? It probably the Beatles kind of started on two tracks. I yeah, say. mono stuff. I, I I wonder. It'd be interesting to see like what, um, you know, like when when the first like true stereo rock and roll recordings were coming out. So much of it was mono. Yeah, we might kind of like touch on that a little bit, like some of the innovations that we're going to talk about. But cool. I mean, briefly, like we're not going to go into it like crazy, yeah. like, but just like kind of touch on it here and there. All right, back to Buddy Holly. Um, he's also known for his use of orchestration. So double tracking and orchestration were kind of things that weren't really being done in the studio until, um, you know, he came around. Not, I wouldn't say he invented it, but, you know, right. again, just another big like innovator there. And then lastly, he's credited for standardizing the two guitar, bass, and drums format, which is the format today. Yeah. Two guitars, one bass, one drummer. That's mm-hmm. like, yep. you know, he started that with his band. Classic. And that's a classic, yeah, yeah just a classic setup. Rhythm guitar, lead guitar, bass and drums. That's, that's how it goes. It's beautiful. It is a beautiful thing. <laughs> uh, he sported a Fender Stratocaster, another beautiful classic guitar. It's like, I, I, like I think about Buddy Holly sometimes when I see a Strat. Oh, yeah. man. She's like the, the, um, the oh, why can't I think of the finish, the... Uh, was it, was it red or what color yeah, strap was he using? Sunburst. Oh, sunburst. Sunburst. Yeah, I was oh it was a black sunburst. Whatever yeah. Fender's version of that. Yeah. You know what the strat was before it was the Stratocaster? It was a few things. I should broadcaster. The, the broadcaster. Yeah, yeah, that's what I, I was going for. The broadcaster. That's awesome. Yeah, I just picked that up as as part of my research. I, wonder, I didn't know that like beforehand. I wonder where the strat word came from. Yeah, I don't know. I have no Stratosphere. idea. Stratosphere. Uh, some. Spacey, yeah, yeah some yeah. spacey things. Who knows, Leo? I Fender. like Fender's names. I like all the names of their uh-huh. things. Yeah, it's yeah. A couple things about Buddy Holly, and then we're gonna wrap up. So, with Buddy Holly, we're gonna we're gonna keep going. There's, there's some good stuff here. <laughs> we'll see you guys later. Um, yeah, <laughs> we'll see you, Tony. Um, so he was known for his vocal hiccups and alternating between his regular singing voice and his falsetto. He also played in a way that complemented his stuttering vocals. McCartney, Lennon, Jagger probably a number of other you know british uh performers and, and bandmates saw buddy holly uh in london and they idolized him so he was just key in influencing these other bands as well we're going to talk about that lots of bands influenced the beatles and the stones and whatnot um and the beatles actually landed on their name because of buddy holly's band the crickets so mm. he was called the crickets and they just decided you know silver beatles and yeah the- then the Beatles. Was it the Silver Beatles and then yeah. the Beatles? Okay. The Quarrymen, I think there might have been another name than the Silver Beatles. Spelt with two E's, and then they switched it to the Smart, right. the, the Beat. But the Quarrymen was before McCartney, right? That was just John Lennon's band, wasn't it? Yeah, and I think he did ask Paul to join. I, I just recently got fresh to that on the McCartney 321 thing mm. on Hulu with Rick Rubin, which was really cool. Yeah, I but watched yeah. that too. Buddy Holly, man, he's admittedly he's like one figure in the pantheon that I haven't gotten into as much as I should. I, I felt the same I way. Yeah. I felt the same way, and I wanted to keep going. Um, but a couple last last other things that I thought thought were very interesting about him is uh, Don McLean's American Pie. That whole album was dedicated to Buddy Holly. The lyric "The day the music died" is obviously I think we know this, but it's a reference to the plane crash that Buddy Holly and Richie, Richie Val- Valens yeah. and Big Bopper. I think it is Big Bopper, yeah. Uh, they all they all died in that plane crash. That song is about that. And then, yeah, he just really, all these artists, to kind of sum up this section, set the stage for the 60s. And we're going to, there's a couple more that are going to kind of like interweave their, their way in, but we're just going to start with those figures for now. Um, but yeah, just to kind of set it up, 
into the 60s. It's pretty um, Im- important for. I feel like it, there are some other names, but not as prominent as those. Yeah, we're going to talk about one guy next that's like, I mean, he's just like a really important innovator, and that's Les Paul. Mm, and okay. Just a couple things about him. We're not going to go too crazy, but you have to talk about, I think if you're talking about the birth of rock and roll, you have to talk about these in, in, um, innovations that are all kind of starting simultaneously. You know what I mean? So we talked about like, I mean, we're going to get into distortion in a minute, but you have to get up to like the guitar, you know what I mean? Which is like arguably, I mean, it did come before everything else. So you got to talk about Les Paul, Yeah. <laughs> you know, oh, dude. Yeah. Good call. You just, you have to do it. It's not necessarily chronological order. It's kind mm. of simultaneous. We're going to sure. talk a little bit more about Les Paul than we did about these other people. Um, but Les Paul was born in uh, June 9th, 1915. And he's the man. Um, he's a true innovator. He's best known as one of the pioneers of the solid body electric guitar. His original prototype. Do you guys know what the original prototype of his uh, guitar was called? Was it the log? Dude, Chad's on it today. Yeah? Chad knows it's called the log. Jeez. Yeah. I think and it was I think that was more of a semi-hollow though. It was a semi-hollow. Um, but that was like his prototype. Gotcha. Um he would you know, he would work on that. We have a couple facts coming up about it. But it's what inspired the shape for what would eventually become the Gibson Les Paul. He built the log in nineteen forty and he would work on it after hours at the Epiphone factory. So just uh, any chance he got, yeah. he could work on it at the fact. I don't know if he worked there like otherwise, but that's where he would work on it. I didn't know Epiphone was pre Gibson Brandt. Yeah, neither did I. Um, may, they might be a little bit simultaneous, like at the same time, but yeah, and like the Gibson bought Epiphone out at some point. Did that, yeah. that happen? Yeah, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that makes sense. Interesting though. Epiphones, for anybody that doesn't know, are kind of like a lower grade, more affordable Gibson. Which I feel like it kind of still is today, kind of yeah. like the same thing, right? Yeah. Which isn't it's like universally like true. Like there's some people prefer to play Epiphones. There's some. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Lennon, Lennon was playing an Epiphone casino and all the mm-hmm. get back stuff, you know, throughout the, the tail end of the, the Beatles. Yeah. I guess uh, only nowadays it's, it can be perceived you know, like that way. That, perceived that yeah. way. Yeah. Who cares? Who cares? If you like it and it feels good, play it. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Um, I won't explain the technicalities because I don't know them, but behind the design, um, but it was able to solve two problems. He solved two problems with the log that were an issue with hollow body electric guitars. And the first was feedback. I think about playing like the upright bass and how much we struggled with that. Yeah. I think that's like kind of what he was able to, to solve from the solid body guitar. Right. And the second was sustain, just being able to like hold those notes out as long as possible. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Excuse me. I think yeah. the Les Paul is kind of known for being a highly sustainable, sustaining guitar. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. sustainable maybe too. Yeah. Especially through a dimed amp, like everything on 10. Um, I mean, that came way later, but I think too, I, you know, I, I'm not entirely sure when humbuckers were invented, but I know that the Les Paul had humbuckers in it. So I think, mm, yeah, um, I feel like that was a pretty does a big step in being able to kind of solve some problems. Do you have that? I don't have that. Okay. Okay. So huge difference between a Fender guitar, say, and a Gibson guitar. Yeah. Like a a single coil guitar, which single coils are found in all of these Fender guitars, um, is just one set of six magnets wound in copper wire. And that will have like a really high propensity to buzz real bad. Uh So you can, I mean, everybody kind of knows this who plays guitar um who has a single coil instrument you know it, it gets really buzzy so i think les paul i think maybe we need to fact check this but um in the les pauls there were humbuckers so they're two single coils combined that are wound uh into basically wound into one another and their their feeds cancel out the hum so mm-hmm. it bucks the hum Bucks so, the hum. Bucks the hum. I like that. Yeah, so that's along with the sustained thing and the feedback. That's those are like, yeah, yeah, like the three things that just kind of. I bet there were some single coil prototypes. I'm sure. Yeah, there had to have been. Probably. And uh, actually, I'm gonna get into it right now. I was gonna just like drop a fact on you, but like it's in the outline, so we might as well just keep going, right? <laughs> um, fun fact. So when when Paul originally approached Gibson Guitar Corps with the design, he was rejected. 
they were still of the mindset that people wanted hollow body guitars so they were just like nope not ready yet in fact this is what ultimately led fender to being credited with the invention of the solid body electric guitar the fender broadcaster as we were talking about earlier mm. they started four years before gibson was ready to produce uh produce les paul's model so because of a technicality like les paul didn't get credited for creating the solid Dang. body guitar i didn't you know? know that yeah um yeah that they didn't like i was under the feet. impression that that fender had created or invented the first solid body well yeah so they're credited with it because right. They're the one, the first ones to like mass produce it. Wow, Les good, Paul was working on it. Fact right there. Yeah. Um, once Fender mass produced a solid body, that's when Gibson reached back out to Paul with an endorsement deal. They launched the Gibson Les Paul in 1952, which wow. is an iconic guitar. You can't mistake it. You can't mistake the shape, right? Um, and although his name is synonymous with guitars, Les Paul is also responsible for other innovations in recording. And, and sound. He's responsible for sound on sound recording, overdubbing, and reverb. So all of those things can be tied back to Les Paul, which is pretty dope. That's um, new to me. Yep. He was a player, too. He was He's a jazz fantastic guy. player. Yeah, yeah, he was a jazz guy. What was his wife's name? Uh, um, Mary Ford. No. Mary Ford. No. It is, is some, it? It's something Ford, for sure. Yeah, I think it's yeah. Mary Ford. Um yeah, they played in a group together for a long time. Um, and he's also an innovator when it came to multi-track recording. So huge. the the eight track, um, which again I don't think he like directly invented, but he, I think what what they did before was they like would stack them on top of each other before they just made like the original eight track. Mm. So he was you know fidgeting around with all this stuff before it was ever even a thing, and that changed the game when it came to music production. And what I want to wrap up with, with like Les Paul is like, what's cool about him is like, this is all before the internet. <laughs> like back when people wanted to get shit done, they had to just like tinker and take shit apart and put it back together and just experiment, dude. Yeah, like, man. Dude, even with the internet today, I don't think I would try to build a guitar. <laughs> like For real. <laughs> like it just took like real innovators back then. I think this it's the same with like guitarists too. Like, yeah. You know, like uh, like the Keith Richards of the world don't exist anymore, you know? Yeah. I mean, innovation is like, that's something that I think about a lot, like where music has ended up since the, er the period that we're talking about now. There's been nothing but innovation. And I feel like now for kind of the first time in history, we're at a point where like everything's always on the table. And it's like kind of hard to figure out where to go from here. All the the instruments that, <laughs> you know, like we we can conceive of have kind of been invented other than like some weird like, I don't know, synthesizer orb shit. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, I know what you mean. I've mentioned this before. Like every innovation now is like sonically. It's like, how do you like make this crazy sound out of like like hitting a pot with a drumstick or like, right. you know what I mean? It's like yeah. and manipulating it to sound like a like a bass note or something, yeah. you know, it's, it's, yeah. I think those are where the innovations are is like continuing to manipulate sound waves, but it's just in a different way. Right. You yeah. know? Yeah. Like sonically. Um, want to do more beers? Yeah. Let's do it. Sorry. But, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I'm all just going to add, I heard someone say the best like innovation or like technology in guitar in the last 20 years is the snark tuner. <laughs> oh my. <laughs> The snark? Yes, the snark. The, snark. the clip-on tuner. I mean, clip yeah, on, yeah. I can't think of anything that is as important as that. <laughs> I, I mean, pedal, that. pedals That's... can go in thousands of ways, but like, yeah. pe a pedal isn't <laughs> a, really that new of a thing. Yeah, you're probably right, honestly. Uh, I had a Which I you're going to get into. I'm going to get into the snark tuner. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're, you're getting into pedals. <laughs> yeah, we, we'll talk a little bit about pedals. All right, before we continue with innovations and new sounds, though, what I want to touch on is another genre that I left out of the history of rock and roll part one, and that's doo-wop. Mm. And the reason why I feel like is is because I think doo-wop was like one of the first like real like commercial commercialized genres. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, let's just get into it. Another form of R&B and another genre made popular by African-American youth in the 1940s Doo-wop 
um, its main ingredient is like vocal harmony, right? Early doo-wop had little to no instrumentation. In fact, like bass singers would just like, you know, do like literal bass notes at times. Think like a lot of Christmas music, boom, you know, boom, boom, boom. boom. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or they would like phrase things, um, like they would say, you know, like the chorus or whatever in the bass note. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah. Um, if I'm incorrect, fact check me. But I think that's kind of how it went down. Mm-hmm. Um, this was a time when instruments weren't necessarily readily available to everyone, and we talked about like the industrial revolution, but they were still like you know not as available as they are today what time period did you say this so it uh it started in the 40s but i think it continued throughout that decade Mm -hmm. obviously like you know blues kind of i think took over and r&b took over and then obviously rock and roll in the 50s but doo-wop was like before that kind of like the in-between between between like like jazz and r&b it's kind of how i would describe that um and like i said like a lot of like the running bass notes like bass singers would just sing you know um, they would do cool stuff like that. Um, so again, this was a time when instruments weren't readily available to everyone. Um, and they had to just work with what they had. They had to be creative when you don't have instruments, you rely on what you do have and that's your vocals. Um, doo-wop songs were often about love, right? Um, and the one thing about doo-wop that's cool is it's pretty synonymous with, um, with impressing the opposite sex. You know, and there's lots of genres or things like that. Like, I think like, um, gosh, more like like breakdancing, for example. It's all about like, like again, like that sex appeal. Like it's it's kind of like showing off. Mm-hmm. That's that's doo-wop. You always got to end in that one pose where you're like, what's up? Yeah, <laughs> you got to end in that one pose. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I immediately think like Frankie Valley too. Like this like short little dude who has this like amazing falsetto. You know probably got so many chicks you know what i'm saying Guaranteed. um but that's what it was all about it was you know it was all about just impressing the opposite sex that's kind of synonymous with or the same sex for the tutti fruities mm. yeah yeah or if you're a little richard you know um yeah no but yeah the point being is just you're trying to impress someone right yeah, yeah. tale as old as time showing yeah. off yeah song as old as rhyme <laughs> exactly <laughs> Um, do, uh, I already said that. So there are five key ingredients or five key features of doo-wop music. Um, now these are important, so pay attention. No, I'm just kidding. Hmm. Um, so it's vocal music performed by um, a group. We know this. We talked about this. It features a wide range of vocal parts. It includes nonsense syllables, and these are basically words that make no sense. Like Ooh, I think even just like in, for sound, just for the sound like, of the wow, word. Wow! 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 Yeah. Yeah, or like even la, la, in, la. Um, yeah, yeah. in Tutti Fruity is like a wop, bop, a loop, bop, you know what I mean? Mm, wop, bamboo, like yeah. those types of things. Um, there's a simple beat and low key instrumentation. I think like the flamingos, like I only have eyes, you know that song? Like yeah. very little instrumentation, but very good. Um, and then it has simple words and music. And the other reason why I brought up those five things is because, again, key ingredients for rock and roll you know what i mean true. very simplified music for everyone to understand right um, I think for early elvis from like heartbreak hotel oof. there's like hardly anything going on yeah it's a really sparse yeah. arrangement yeah yeah and i think and not even i don't know i mean i didn't really get into like the like the structure of the songs you know um but just yeah just like kind of like the like the feel of the songs, mm. you know what I mean? Uh, very marketable, very poppy. Like these are like the first things that I think were like popular on the on the pop charts, you know, were these doo-wop songs, and they would keep that format going forever. Yeah, you know, yeah. pretty dope. Next, we're gonna talk about a group. Next, we're gonna talk about the Everly Brothers. I consider them, and I don't know if it's right for me to do this, but I feel like they're kind of the bridge between like doo-wop and rock and roll. Yeah, just, I, I think that's a solid Just statement. because of their, like, harmonies and, yeah. and all that kind of stuff, you know. Um, and they were a country rock duo. They combined elements of country, rock, and pop. And they're also known for close harmony singing. Close or close? Um, it, it's both the same. Like, closed voicings means that the the notes that they're singing are as close together as they possibly can be without being the same note. Right. That makes sense. 
because thinking about like the four part harmonies that you'd hear in duop, the bass player or the bass singer is singing a note that's probably the furthest away from what the highest singer is playing. And so this is just like that even medium right in the middle. Right. Yeah. The notes just aren't that far, far apart from each other is what, what I wrote down. I should have just kept reading. Anyway, (laughs) (laughs) We got Um, you. What I didn't know was that they didn't write their own songs. I thought that was kind of interesting. They a ghostwriter? Huh? They had a ghostwriter? I think so. They were like, so the song, All I Have to Do is Dream, was actually written by Felice and Bodlo. Bodlo? I think that's how, they, that's how you say his name. Felice and Bodlo Bryant. Um, I guess I just, I wanted to just give them credit. But yeah, I thought that was interesting. Yeah. The most popular version of that song, All I Have to Do is Dream, was recorded at RCA. So. Yeah, we're getting we're getting back there a little bit. This is like nineteen, I think fifty four. I can't remember. I didn't write it down. Um, and it took two takes. It was recorded live, and they did it in two takes. Boss move. Boss moved, and it's a great recording too. It's the way to do it. This was the only single to be number one on all Billboard singles charts simultaneously. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. What was that like country and pop and? Yeah, so it was number one. For R&B and country, and then the song remained on the top 100 charts for three weeks, um, and then was also played. It was like also most popular. There was like some award or something where it's like most popular amongst jockeys. Oh. So it had got that like award too, or that that accolade as well. Nice. Yeah. Um, the hev- the heavily, the Everly Brothers were highly influential in their performance of their song. So they inspired the Beatles, the Beach Boys, the Bee Gees. And even other uh, duos like Simon and Garfunkel. And I saw this interview with Paul McCartney. I think it might have been in 321. He credits the Everly Brothers directly with the way they like shared the mic Mm -hmm. and things like that. So Uh, another move that you see all throughout rock and roll. Like it doesn't, you know what I mean? Yeah. It doesn't stop with the Beatles. Like everybody shares mics. It's like this cool thing, you know? Yeah. Like I always wanted to do it. Yeah, but I never really got into it. Yeah, you just smell the other person's breath the whole time. Yeah, but chicks Usu- dig it. Usually, if you're playing a bar or something, it's not it's not good breath. <laughs> it's not good breath. Yeah. It's not good breath. Well, it's interesting that you're pointing out, and especially like the inclusion of duop into this whole thing. I think, in my mind, the big takeaway from duop is just the vocal harmony that you can have. Um, Something that sounds like a lead vocal, but it's more than one person singing. It's evenly distributed amongst all the singers of the group. Right. Um, right. And that's the connection that I was trying to make was like how doo-wop influenced song structure. So did the Everly Brothers. Right. You know, they kind of like we're, we're kind of catching on themes here. Totally. You know what I mean? Yeah. Things that stand out. I mean, this is it hit number one on multiple charts for a reason is because yeah. now we're looking at things like song structure um, and harmonies, I think, just being really appealing to the ears and things that are putting, you know, starting to put rock on the map. There's right? nothing like a good vocal harmony, man. You hear two people like in tune with each other. It's there's nothing like that. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, and yeah, and the Beatles are known for this. The Beach Boys, especially, are known for this. You know, um, writing and harmonies and whatnot. And it was it was a powerful tool. Yeah. Beach Boys know? were almost like trying to do do wop. Yeah, yeah like all the, the uniforms and and that's why you can't not mention duo yeah it's because it was so influential yeah. i think like kind of low-key but it was the way they they harmonized it just you, you can't mention rock and roll i think without harmonies and without distortion yeah. and that's what's great about rock and roll too is there's like all these kind of like not contradictions but you have like dirty and clean and those, you know, those two things together, like, make rock and roll. Yeah. You know, and that's Hell why yeah. you have to mention both. Yeah. Anyways, to kind of wrap up that segment, or to transition into this next segment, we're going to get into amplification and distortion. Mainly just distortion. Um, so, remember, quick recap. Urbanization. No, that's not right. Quick recap. The Great Migration led to urbanization. So, areas that were once rural are now more and more populated with people, right? This creates noise, which creates the need for louder music, right? So the blues musicians that were playing in clubs are now competing for attention, right? They can't hear over conversation. Yeah. We, we all have probably experienced this to some extent too, except we just play loud music. So it doesn't really, <laughs> it doesn't really matter. 
early distortion was discovered by accident. Like it was an accidental invention. Um, these musicians were turning it up to 11. And this was just creating distortion coming from their amplifiers unintentionally. Mm. And you probably couldn't even hear it that much because, you know, it's, you know, again, over like clinking glasses and just people laughing and whatnot. But it was there. Just you, you couldn't really hear it. Distortion, I think for like audio nerds out there, means that the edges of sound waves coming from the guitar are being compressed. Right. Right. Yep. <laughs> for even bigger nerds. Before transistors and before solid state circuits, which this is all over my head, by the way. Keep going. Uh, but before that. I love you know, hearing you say those words. Yeah. Say it again. You want to hear me say it again? <laughs> say it again. Um, yeah. All over my head. But before that, amplifiers contained vacuum tubes. Mm-hmm. And they still. They still maybe, do. Maybe still not. Do. Are they vacuum tubes or just. Yeah. So yeah. the technology is still the same. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's a reason for that. They, you know, The sound was. You yeah. can't replicate that. Yeah, yeah. There's there's something to it. I'm not sure how to even begin to describe it, but I guess the way that I would would be um, to mean in my ear, it just sounds a little bit more 3D. Like if you're listening to it, uh, listening to a tube amp versus a solid state amp. Um, I don't know. I can hear more of like the like more harmonic nuance in the guitar or whatever else is coming. A lot of times accordion. Mm. accordion like there's a lot of on the on these vintage jams there's a guitar input and an accordion input which is pretty wild to think about distorted accordion yeah right (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah so essentially too like with with tube amps right it's like it's too much current that's going through the tubes right it reaches capacity overloading your circuit and that's when you get distortion Mm -hmm. right interesting and yeah i feel like I feel like a lot of these amps too, like kind of have that natural setting mm-hmm. where it's like you kind of have like a natural distortion and then obviously you can crank it however you want, but there has, it's kind of just built into the tone. I think that's what you're saying as well. Yeah. You can kind of just, you can hear like those, those nuances. Right. And each amp has uh each and even the brand of amp like Fender versus Vox versus Marshall, you know, in my mind, kind of like the Holy Trinity of like two, like tube amps, um, their circuits are all different and have different uh, points at which distortion occurs. Fenders are kind of known for having a higher headroom, meaning that um, it takes a lot more volume for that amp to distort as compared to a Vox. And then on the other side, of the, the other end of the spectrum is Marshalls, which distort pretty pretty early, which is a yeah. high, now a highly desirable thing. Yeah. Yeah. Which you did you ever rock a Marshall? Yeah, that was kind of like the first tube amp I got, um, and the one that I always wanted. Uh, yeah. Just because I had seen like Eric Clapton and Jimi Hendrix, and specifically Zeppelin, um, use them live. I know Jimmy Page used a bunch of different things live, but, but yeah, Hendrix too. That was like his main thing, you know, strat straight into like three fucking marshall stacks yeah dimed Dimed. that's what's up <laughs> yeah it's it's hard doing these outlines because you could literally talk about amplifiers and like these you know yeah there's probably mm-hmm. lots of innovators there too you totally. know it's yeah. so it's so wild rock and roll would not absolutely not exist without it yeah you know it's like such a key factor even nowadays like yeah no it is we did mention in the first one that the first amplifiers were just like pas Mm-hmm. right like they weren't even meant for instruments which i thought yeah. was kind of funny yeah. yeah a lot of amps were accordion amps yeah just to yeah. get like the, the vocals over how loud everything else was yeah which is i mean um i had i mean the yeah you could go into so much detail about each amp company and you know especially marshall that's that's always kind of been really intriguing to me and how like the genesis of their their circuits and their amps kind of came about and kind of trying to solve that problem of like the club is way too loud. We need to get the music over that. So it's enveloping. Um, then they invent a bass amp to do that. Cause yeah. there, there were no bass amps that could achieve that level of output. And they do, they do that. And then somebody plugs a guitar into it. And then it turns out that these like Marshall bass amps, end up being like the best sounding distorted electric guitar amp and then yeah you know then it, then all these other sonic innovators just like make history you know hendrix and all those fools but. yeah that's pretty cool though i didn't know that 
Yeah, that's I mean, pretty cool little tidbit about the bass amp too. Yeah, yeah. There's it's um, on Reverb.com. They have uh, Andy from Pro Guitar Shop do a series about um, like the th- the Holy Grail of amps that, or uh-huh. uh, not the Holy Grail, the Holy Trinity of amps, uh, oh, like the, the Marshall Fender and Vox thing. It talks about like the differences, and that's definitely something to check out. Um, but yeah, and you just get like interesting little tidbits about like how these amps came to be and what what problems were trying to be solved, and then which and then the solutions ended up creating like this whole palette for generations of musicians to tap into for like I mean years to come. I mean, Jesus, and it, yeah, I get full body chills because it's just like <laughs> like a, like an a fucking accident could like. St- alter the course of history yeah you know like <laughs> all right well with that let's get into this next i think it's i think this is uh we're, we're heading there right now Hell like yeah. you said an accident yeah so at this time distortion was still very much considered an error right sound engineers wanted to keep tones clean as you mentioned probably let the vocals shine or whatnot this was until jackie brinston and his delta cats do you know who that ever heard okay do you know what song i'm referencing pretty soon no okay anyways this band was led by piece of shit Ike Turner. I always just say that. Little, <laughs> piece of shit. Um, and they recorded the song Rocket 88. So let's back up a little bit. Jackie Branson is like the artist. The Delta Cats are the band led by Ike Turner. They recorded Rocket 88 in 1951, which is considered by many to be the first ever rock and roll recording. And that's because Willie Kizart, the guitarist of the band, had a tube amplifier that was damaged while being transported. They recorded with it anyways, and this changed the game, right? This caused other guitarists, um, and I'm sure, you know, amp manufacturers or whatever, to experiment with innovative sounds. Yeah. So, like you said, accidents, right? Just things that happened on accident. But he lost, like, the master circuit, and he was just preloading the, like, earlier circuit on there too Mm -hmm. hard, and it just, like, it distorted earlier and not louder. Yeah. And it was, like, it was a vibe. Well, it said trans- he was transporting it, and it was broken. So whatever happened, I don't know, whatever damage occurred to his amp. It, so two, like <clears throat> vacuum tubes are fragile. Right. You know, they're they're exactly. made out of glass. Yeah. yeah. And if one of you can, you could, your guitar will work if it's missing one, like one of them. It'll still put sound through. I wonder if that's what, what might have happened. Yeah. Like, yeah. Well, it overloads the other ones, and that's how you, you know, you mm-hmm. create distortion maybe. Yeah. I don't know. Anyways, let's go. We're going to keep going through with uh, with distortion talk about some key like songs and Oof. things like that and then we're gonna wrap up pretty soon so like i said we're still scratching the surface there's still a lot to dive into um okay you know the song rumble by link ray oh yeah no no <laughs> no tony oh no, dude <laughs> bro and, uh, you gotta you see seen oh. it might get loud there's like a classic scene of jimmy page like air guitaring to link ray's rumble it's uh, sick. Oh, it's so dope that's beautiful but yeah, so the song Rumble by Link Ray, this um, was a hit in 1958, and it's a 12-bar blues instrumental. So no vocals, nothing, just guitar. Uh, it combined distortion with tremolo, which mm-hmm. is just a beautiful combo. Yes. It's just, if you can like tame it, it's so good. Swampy. Rumble was a slang term for a gang fight, as we know now, right? Get Got a into a little bit of a rumble, right? Um, and this caused the song to be banned in both New York and Boston, for fear that it would <laughs> for fear that it would incite violence. <laughs> Classic. Um, and if you listen to this song, it's very powerful in the message it's trying to convey. Like it almost reminds me of like set like a western. Yeah. It's yeah. not really, but like it has the same kind of vibe. Like you know, like you're gonna face off in like the town, like the center of the town. Yeah. You know what I mean? Right. Like totally. it has that kind of vibe to it. Standoff. Yeah. And there's actually like a video of these like. It's actually like a like an early video of like these two gangs meeting up. So it was I don't know if it was like released on television or if oh, they did sweet. that after, but people were getting the message. You know what I mean? MTV like, yeah. trying to make some money. <laughs> yeah, exact MTV. Yeah. No, I think it was like a '50s or '60s thing. Oh, cool. And they like pull out their switchblades at the end, and you, you know. Yeah. So like, the rest is up to interpretation. <laughs> um, and what I love about this song, like I mentioned before, with like distortion and tremolo, is like control. You know, like you're hearing these new sounds, but they're not going crazy. Right. It's just like this, you know, you can just tell he like respects the combination. And it's like this new thing. He's like 
you know, caring for essentially. Mm-hmm. You can't like overdo it. Yeah. You know, it's like lightning in a bottle. Exactly. Like, yeah, it's, it's two with chords the, with the tremolo too. Three chords and a, three chords and a, just like straight down the pentatonic scale, like yeah, literally. But uh, with the tremolo, the like the tremolo gets faster or slower as the song like progresses. So it, like oh. this, it like builds so much like intensity and then like relief even like at some points. Like, yeah, I wonder how they so achieved it, that. Somebody was uh, a roadie was just slowly turning up the intensity on the or the speed of the tremolo knob. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Yeah. I mean, yeah. they were doing cool stuff in the studio even back then. You know, or I don't know. Anyways, the studio is uh, an instrument. Truth. Yeah, it is, dude. Um, this song's also credited with popularizing the power chord. Lots of themes here that are gonna, you know, just carry its way through through time. I should listen to this song, dude. It's <laughs> a staple of rock and roll. We will man. listen to it right after we get done. I don't even know why you invited me here. <laughs> <laughs> Artists like Jimmy Page, Iggy Pop, even Neil Young credit Ray as an early inspiration. Um. In the uh, in the 1960s, now we have the creation of distortion pedals. So we're coming from like you know doing it in the studio, damaged amplifiers, whatnot. But now in the 60s, we have the creation of distortion pedals made to manipulate guitar signals. Right, Dallas Arbiter. Oof. Yeah. Um, was elaborate to Tone Master. Yeah, yeah, I think uh, that was like a pretty. Is that a distortion? I don't know pedal? if it was like the most early, but yeah, it was used. It was like a a treble booster because mm-hmm. like when some of these amps were getting louder. The bass was just too loud. So it kind of pushed mm. like higher frequencies um, and which resulted in distortion. We're going to talk about the early like fuzz boxes. Nice. This is like the, the creation of those. So the early fuzz boxes were the Maestro fuzz tone FZ one created by Orville red Rhodes in 1962. Um, the FZ one was the predecessor to the big muff. Um, which is one of the most famous fuzz pezzle, pedals of all time. Yeah. I actually fun. have one. It's like well, the, one of the only pedals I have. <laughs> nice. Uh, and they still make them today, which is pretty cool. The Big Muff was first made in 1968. So 62 was the FZ1, Big Muff 1968. Um, the FZ1 was used on a song by the Ventures called The 2000 Pound B. Any of you familiar with that song? I know the Venture. Like, don't know the yeah. song, but yeah. Yeah, it's a. I feel like it's like one of those you would know. Like the second you hear it, you know it. But sixties yeah. fuzz is a very specific sound, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah, and, and very much like a. Um, the Ventures were from California, right? Um, I think so. It's like full surf rock band. Yeah, yeah. I feel like they were like from like Van Nuys or somewhere like in the Valley, maybe. Yeah, we need to dive into like just the California scene at some point because it's freaking cool. Yeah. yeah, I purposely left Dick Dale off of this to talk about him on the like part three. Cool. Because, anyways, that's like yeah the spring reverb or reverb episode. <laughs> <laughs> but he was, he also did a lot of um, he's responsible for like I think partnering with like major like amp uh, amp manufacturers mm-hmm. and you know really like um. Yeah, just like progressing those. Yeah. Making those like bigger and better and whatnot. So next on our list, and I think we have to know this song. In fact, I'll even let you like maybe guess this song. Uh-huh. It's so big when it comes to like distortion. Any thoughts? Any mm. ideas? It's uh well, I'll give you a hint. It was Can I get a year? Sixty four. Hmm. Revolution? No, nah, that was that no. was a couple years later. I was thinking Revolution too. That's got like a Johnny B. Good. I'll give you the band, The Kinks. Oh, I can't think of the song. I know. Oh, uh, wait, wait. Your stepdad's gonna hate us for this. You know what's funny? Yeah, it is. So, so I'm actually ashamed to say that I didn't really know their catalog that well you really got me now yeah yeah yeah, it's you really got me by the kinks it's not a van halen song (laughs) (laughs) van halen didn't write that song no it was the kinks originally and there were so many songs that i didn't realize were their songs i started listening kind of this week as i was you know putting this together kinks guitarist dave davies slashed holes in his speaker cones with a razor and this is how they he achieved that iconic sound and you really got me interesting it's flappy Mm -hmm super flappy so dude flap tone. yeah there's a story to the madness here it said that dave davies was 
angry and he took out his anger on his amplifier. He wanted to marry his childhood sweetheart who was pregnant with their child, but they weren't permitted by their parents to get married. They just weren't, weren't having it. He'd been toying around with a razor blade and rather than take it out on himself, he sliced his speaker cones on his El Pico, El Pico, Hmm. E-L-P-I-C-O. El Nico? We'll say El Pico amplifier. Okay. So he sliced the cones on that. Um, It didn't stop there though. Once he had this newly modified sound, they wired it to a Vox AC30 to make it louder. Oh, cool. So it's pretty, pretty cool. Again, like very innovative cap. stuff. They're like, you know, Shell Tamey, who's another, like, I think just famous producer, um, took his studio expertise and was able to successfully track the guitar. He recorded the guitar on two channels, one distorted and one clean. And again, this kind of creates like a louder, more full sound. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's how they were able to like tame this beast of a, of a sound. That's, that's interesting. Man. I haven't heard of that totally makes sense when I when I hear it in my head when I'm listening to it in my head, it sound it totally sounds like there is a cleaner sounding guitar mix blended with a distorted sounding one. So you get some of the the clarity of what the part is, but then you get all that attitude and vibe that the fucked up cone yeah kind of allows you to get for sure. Super cool for sure. And you mentioned when yeah. we started um, listening to was it like Nirvana no Green Day. Right. On KLOS, yeah. which is weird that like classic classic rock now is Green Day. Yeah, just to <laughs> think about that. to think about it that way, that's weird. <laughs> like, it just, I mean, it's just that one decade later. You I mean, know? It's, <laughs> it's it's kind of like I suppose K, KLOS is kind of just like all things rock now, because I mean, I yeah, there's like K Rock and maybe all ninety whatever, but yeah, I mean, who listens to the radio anyway? Right. Exactly. I drive a 2002 Chevy Tahoe that <laughs> doesn't have a functioning CD player. So. No, I feel you, dude. Radio I mean, I listen every now and then, but, uh, but no. But to your point, that's what's cool about yeah. like distortion is like it, it sounds the same. You know, like yeah. you, you can't get like too crazy with it. You know, oh, um, man, you can though. There's a lot like of ways. metal, yeah. metal. Like I mean, there's when I think of Green Day, I think of like mesa boogie heads and some uh, like high high gain because there's like there's a par- marshall like a marshall exactly like there's high gain and low gain amps and there's all this nuance in between uh you know the types of distortion you could get and and it's it's almost like it feels sometimes like it's kind of like splitting hairs like how much of a difference does this really make but i mean if it sounds good to you and it fits like within the context of your music then that's all that matters well, I remember that with like the the swollen pickle too, and like just like they had like the crunch knob, yeah, and just adding, you know, just like toying around with that, just like slightly changes the sound. Yeah, yeah. Pe- there's thousands and thousands of guitar pedals, and they all sound slight. I mean, a lot of them do the same thing, but right. lo- most, the bigger majority of it, I feel like they all have like a slightly different tone. Yeah, yeah. You know, they, like, they do different things a little bit. Yeah, and and like I think I think about like, to like uh like Jacob, you know, like like dude, like it, it's hard to like control those things, dude. Yeah. And he did a pretty decent job at it, you know. Yeah, yeah, especially running an acoustic instrument like a mandolin yeah, through like all that feedback issues. Oh, like yeah. we were talking about earlier for sure, for sure. So to wrap up with, you really got me. Um, it was the first Kink song to top UK charts, and there was a massive demand for the song when it came out. Like again, everyone was blown blown away by distortion. Um, so much so, though, that Pi Records put other records on hold just to keep up with the demand of this song. Wow. Pretty pretty wild. That's like how influential that song was. Yeah, that's gnarly. Um, and so just to kind of like close here, Rocket 88 in 1951, you can hear a slight buzz in the guitar track. Like it's in the song, but when you listen to, you know, You Really Got Me, like it is the song. You know, mm-hmm. it's very much the star of the show. Yeah. And, and the tones of guitars are starting to change, which... I think it's just super cool, you know, just kind of this, like we spent a lot of time on distortion and whatnot, and we're going to, you know, wrap up shortly, but you have to like tell that story because you don't have rock and roll without distortion or amplification or any of it. Yeah. Like I was just thinking like, there's no way around it. Like I can't skip this, this section and just go straight into like the Beatles and the stones and whoever else, you know, like you have to talk about distortion. The tech is like such a big reason for it existing. Yeah. Yeah. 
just kind of like you have to mention Les Paul briefly. Yeah. You know, like some key yeah. innovators and whatnot. You have to mention that Elvis was like an interpreter, you yeah. know? So. Doo-wop. Doo-wop's influence is absolutely crucial to the, the big picture. Yeah. Lots of people don't make that connection. So anyways, I hope people learned something today. You know, it was fun. I learned something. Tony, I thought you were going to come way more prepared. I'm just kidding. <laughs> you know, I I wasn't really sure what to expect, what to expect. so I, uh, I, I, I did my best. Well, I, I held on for dear life, so. <laughs> I'll say. I feel the same way. Somehow. I'll say you're, you're a hands-on guy. Yeah. You, you experiment and you, you do the playing yourself, so you don't have to do the research like me. Yeah. You know? Everybody just go get a tube amp and, some, and a fuzz pedal. Dude, crucial, <laughs> for real. crucial part of any household. Two yeah. amps, fuzz I would pedals, argue before you guitars. before you go delay, before you go like reverb or anything crazy. Absolutely. Just get a distortion pedal. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter how cheap it is. Does and not. mess around with it. Get a tone you like, and go write a song. Rock. Yeah. Write a song. Go write a song. Or cover someone else's. Learn someone's song. Yeah, do that <laughs> too. Or just make the most. <laughs> fucked up sounds you could ever imagine yeah make your ears bleed yeah yeah and your neighbors yeah do some, <laughs> do cool shit do all right cool, cool. well tony thanks for coming of course appreciate you being here thank you for having me rock and roll part two chad thanks as always for being here as well yeah appreciate you dude rock loving roll. it rock and roll baby all right well peace out everyone peace uh-oh need my finger over there? i need your finger This is a cool setup, man. Thanks. This is actually the first one.